Hi, writers. This is Jim Thayer. Let's talk about point of view in this episode, an important subject. First, let me mention, I hope you're finding these podcasts useful. If you are, please spread the word to your writing friends and writing groups. You might let them know the podcasts are available on Apple, Google, and Spotify and are free. A search for The Essential Guide to Writing a Novel will find them. Much appreciated. Thank you. Let's turn to point of view. Point of view is a term of art for writers. It mainly means which character is experiencing the story and which character's mind can the reader visit. Which character is hearing and seeing things. Within the third person... There are several varying points of view, as described by Joel Rosenberg. The omniscient point of view is author as God, as Rosenberg says. The writer can comment on what the main character is thinking, and then two sentences later reveal what the secondary character is thinking. The writer can disclose anything or keep anything hidden, Rosenberg said. The writer can tell a reader if something is important, can direct the reader's attention elsewhere, can speak of anything, anytime. The omniscient point of view isn't used much anymore, and and today is considered sloppy technique. If you want a glimpse of what an omniscient point of view looks like, uh, try Tolstoy's War and Peace uh, with its omniscient point of view. Techniques change over the years, and omniscient point of view is not is not considered skillful these days. The camera eye point of view, Rosenberg says, is when, though written in the third person, the reader knows only what the main character knows. He says, quote, only what is going on in front of them, never gaining any direct insight into what a character is thinking or feeling, just as though they were watching television or a movie. Finally, Rosenberg notes is the Sigma character point of view, where the point of view often changes from scene to scene, but only one point of view is used in each scene. This Sigma uh, character point of view is most commonly used today, and here's the key. The point of view should stay with one character in a scene. It should not jump to another character in that same scene. Dangers exist when writing in the third person. Because the writer can easily change point of view, he often does. Again and again and again. This leaping from mind to mind destroys the unity of impression, Edith Wharton says. Uh, Few conventions, and this is Edith Wharton, quote, hinder the story more than the slovenly habit of some novelists of tumbling in and out of their characters' minds and then suddenly drawing back to scrutinize them from the outside as the avowed showman holding his puppet strings. Novelist Saul Stein warns, because the writer flits about from character to character, often thoughtlessly, the result can be more like alphabet soup than a controlled experience for the reader. Most inexpert fiction that has come my way is maimed by uncontrolled third-person or omniscient point of view. Any time the reader can visit a character's 
mind, that character has the point of view. Here's an example of a of point of view that flits around so much as to be distracting. In this uh, short partial scene, uh, take a look at how many times the reader visits one of the characters' minds. I don't understand why Sandra puts up with him, Jolene said, wondering if Allie was interested at all. I mean, I'd have bailed out on that relationship a long time ago. Me too, Allie replied. She didn't want to upset Jolene, who she knew could get angry thinking of Sandra. I would have been long gone. The waiter arrived with their wine. They were quiet until he filled their glasses. He returned to the service area. Brushing her hair from her forehead, Monica smiled at Allie. Monica knew Allie had her own problems with her boyfriend. She wanted to yell, follow your own advice, leave him. But she knew better. Sometimes Sandra acts like a 14-year-old. Jolene glanced at Al- again at Allie, trying to read her eyes. Allie, you okay? Allie made a dismissive gesture. I'm living the dream. Couldn't be better. She wondered if her words sounded hollow and if her friends could see through her. Here is where the point of view jumps in this little scenario. Uh, I don't understand why Sandra puts up with him. Jolene said, wondering. That gives Jolene the point of view because we're inside her mind. Me too, Allie replied. She didn't want to upset Jolene. That gives Allie the point of view because now we're reading her thoughts. And then Monica knew Allie had her own problems. That gives Monica the point of view. Sometimes Sandra acts like a 14-year-old. Jolene glanced at Allie, trying to read her eyes. That gives Jolene the point of view again. Allie made a dismissive gesture. I'm living the dream. Couldn't be better. She wondered if her words sounded hollow. That gives Allie the point of view. The point of view here is jumping back and forth, back and forth. It's an omniscient point of view, but it's dizzying. Who does the reader invest her emotions in? Who is she following? Uh, We jump back and forth and back and forth, and it is a dizzying experience to read this. But aren't there times when we want, we as readers want to know, or the author wants to tell us what another character, a the non-point of view character is thinking. Yes, there are, and it can be done readily. The point of view can be maintained with one character always in her head, seeing the action and hearing the action uh, from her eyes and ears, even though the reader is given glimpses of the thought processes of others in the scene. To do this, we can first observe, or two, speculate. The point-of-view character can read emotions into the other character by his mannerisms or expressions rather than jumping into his head. Here's an example of how to do this. Let's say our point-of-view character is Janice. The reader is hearing her thoughts, such as Janice wondered how long the meeting would last, and Janice looked around the room not knowing if she deserved to be there. We're firmly in Janice's mind. 
Let me mention here, if one of our characters is wondering how long a meeting will last, so is the reader. Avoid big, long meetings in our fiction. But I'm using this as an example of how to control point of view. So how do we learn what someone else is thinking without leaving Janice's mind? Without taking the point of view away from her? If we were to write, John was puzzled, the point of view would instantly jump from Janice to John. And we want to avoid this. It's sloppy writing. Instead, we can write, John's eyebrows rose. This is showing Janice is observing John's puzzlement. We learn John is puzzled without leaving Janice's mind. So here are some examples of uh, doing that. In all of these examples, we want the point of view to remain with our main character in the scene, who is Janice. So if we write, John didn't understand how, the point of view is jumped to John. Instead, we can write, John's face was blank. A blank face is showing he doesn't understand. Our point of view is with Janice. If we were to write, Aaron couldn't decide which way to go, we jump into Aaron's mind, giving him the point of view. Instead, we can have Janice observe this. Aaron moved left, then right. Our point of view is with Janice. If we write, Alexa felt cold, the point of view is jumped to Alexa. Instead, we write, which is Janice observing, Alexa shivered, which is showing that Alexa is cold and it doesn't leave Janice's mind. Let's take a quick break. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. Our point of view is with Janice. Marianne was in love with him. That gives Marianne the point of view. Instead, we write, Marianne looked at him for a long while, longer than necessary. This is Janice observing Marianne being in love with him. It's showing how Marianne feels, and it doesn't leave Janice's mind. We've controlled the point of view by keeping it with Janice. Another way to learn what is the non-character's mind is to speculate about what's in his mind. So here again, Janice has the point of view. She's probably our main character in the scene. We want to control the point of view, and we want to hear and see only those things she is hearing and seeing, and we only want to be able to read her mind. We can have Janice speculate for the reader. Here's an example. As you know, if we were to say John is puzzled, we've, John, we've jumped into his mind. But if we have Janice think as if John were puzzled, she's speculating as to what John is thinking. Uh, she could think John might have been cold. Here, we learn John is probably cold from Janice's thoughts. We don't jump into John's mind. Here's another one. 
John seemingly didn't care about the danger. That's Janice's speculation about what John is thinking. It doesn't jump into John's mind. Another, and remember, we want to keep the point of view with Janice in this scene. Perhaps John didn't feel the heat. That's Janice thinking, and it gives the reader a good idea of what's going on with John. He could have been angry. That's Janice's speculation. Maybe he was upset. That is also Janice's speculation, and it doesn't give the point of view to John. These techniques, the main point of view character, the point of view character, observing or speculating, will keep the point of view tight with your main character in the scene. And there's a third way to control a point of view in a scene. Leave it out. Simply don't visit the non-point-of-view character's mind. Delete the phrase or sentence that makes the point-of-view jump. It often, and maybe usually, isn't necessary for the reader to find out what the non-point-of-view character is thinking. Deleting the non-point-of-view character's uh, thoughts and observation often works because the reader will have inferred what the non-point-of-view character is thinking from the context of the scene or from that character's dialogue. It isn't necessary often to tell the reader what a secondary character in a, in a scene is thinking. Here are some techniques about point-of-view uh, in our third-person writing. As we know, it isn't a good technique to jump points of view within a scene, but it's fine to change points of view from one scene to another. Most of the viewpoints should be the main characters in our novel. She is the person whom the writer has spent most of the time with, uh, and the character we are most familiar with and most comfortable with, probably the most interesting character. Uh, Often, the reader has fallen in love with the character, and she wants to be with him more than any other character. Uh, The reader can also experience uh, surprise, wonder, grief, and anger, and other emotions if the reader shares the protagonist's, the hero's, point of view. The reader wants to spend most of the time with the main character. Jack Bickham, the novelist and writing instructor, suggests that the viewpoint should be in our novel, in, should be at, with the main character at least half the time. Probably 70% is more effective. So if our novel has 50 scenes, about 35 of them should be Uh, with the main character's point of view, and 15%, someone else's point of view, maybe the sidekick, even the villain, uh, the romantic interest. This is just a rough guideline. The main point being is that the point of view in our novel should mostly stay with the main character. If your main character isn't in a scene, who should have the point of view? Usually, it's the secondary character who often has the most to lose in a scene. Uh, That secondary character has the most at risk. The reader can best experience the tension if the reader is inside that character's head. 
much has been written about point of view, but mostly it's easy to understand and easy to do. Keep the reader inside one character's mind in a scene. That's pretty much it. Let's change topics. Let's talk about voice. Voice is another term of art for us writers. It is the tone used by the novel's narrator, by the author, as she tells the story. The narrative voice is the voice with which the writer tells his tale. Novelist Elizabeth Berg says, Voice is most simply defined as the way you tell a story, your style. It is not necessarily the way you talk, although it can be. Rather, it is the personality beneath the words, the current that runs through the story, the thing that the reader must be able to believe in and trust. That's Elizabeth Berg. The literary agent Donald Moss defines voice this way. By voice, I think they mean not only a unique way of putting words together, but a unique sensibility, a distinctive way of looking at the world, an outlook that enriches an author's oeuvre. That's Donald Moss. Authors usually tell their story in their own voice, their natural voices, which they find easiest. In fact, many authors, uh, including me, are unaware of their voices. Uh, were someone to describe uh, my voice, uh, my literary voice, the term of art voice, I don't know how they would do so. I, I'm unaware of it. The authors have developed these voices over their own lives, and now they use them in their writing. To do this, Elizabeth Berg says, you, quote, put down into the, onto the paper the words you are hearing in your head, literally. Uh, Elizabeth Berg points out that it is easier to not sound like someone else, and that trying to sound like someone else probably won't work. Some authors, though, are skilled at stepping into a voice that is particularly suitable to their story. Albert Zuckerman notes this about Stephen King, quote, Stephen King's reputation among those unfamiliar with his work seems to rest largely on his bizarre and otherworldly plots, yet he has a sublime gift for the cadences and nuances of small-town America idiomatic speech rendering its gross and subtle tones and rhythms with a uniqueness and an artistry that, to me, rivals Mozart or Van Gogh's. That's uh, Albert Zuckerman on Stephen King, and I agree with him. Here are a f the words of a few well-known authors. Note the differences in their narrative voices. Here's the first lines of Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. And then say what? Say, forget your hunger. Forget you've got a shot in a back by some racist cop. Chuck was here. Chuck came up to Harlem. No, I'll tell you what. Say, say Chuck came up to Harlem and going to take care of business for the black community. That does it. What's the voice? Energetic, young, loud, hip. Here, here are the first lines of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. 
When Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 111st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar and had been the wonder of the Shire for sixty years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame, there was also his prolonged vigor to marvel at. Time wore on, but it seemed to have little effect on Mr. Baggins. I can hear the voice. It's calm, deliberate, it's wry. There's an element of subdued wonder. This is sometimes called the magic voice. It's used in a lot in fantasy and horror. Here are the first lines of Frederick Forsyth's The Day of the Jackal, one of the great thrillers of all time. If you want to learn how to write a thriller, read The Day of the Jackal. Here are the first lines. It is cold at 6.40 in the morning of a March day in Paris and seems even colder when a man is about to be executed by firing squad. At that hour, on March 11, 1963, in the main courtyard of the Fort d'Ivry, a French Air Force colonel stood before a stake driven into the chilly gravel as his hands were bound behind the post and stared with slowly diminish, diminishing disbelief at the squad of soldiers facing him twenty meters away. A foot scuffed the grit, a tiny release from tension, as the blindfold was wrapped around the eyes of Lieutenant Colonel Jean-Marie Bastien Thierry, aged thirty-five blotting out the light for the last time. The mumbling of the priest was a helpless counterpoint to the crackling of twenty rifle bolts as the soldiers charged and cocked their carbines. What's the voice? It's tense, precise, it's percussive and cold. Here's another voice, the first lines of uh, chapter 1 of Mary Higgins Clark's Let Me Call You Sweetheart. Listen to the difference in the voice here from uh, 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 Frederick Forsyth. Carrie smoothed down the skirt of her dark green suit, straightened the narrow gold chain on her neck, and ran her fingers through her collar-length dusky blonde hair. Her entire afternoon had been a mad rush, leaving the courthouse at 2.30, picking up Robin at school, driving from Hohokus through the heavy traffic of routes 17 and 4, then over the George Washington Bridge to Manhattan, finally parking the car and arriving at the doctor's office just in time for Robin's four o'clock appointment. Now, after all the rush, Carrie could only sit and wait to be summoned into the examining room, wishing that she'd been allowed to be with Robin while the stitches were removed. But the nurse had been, adequate, had been adamant. What's the voice? It's confident, it's rushed and caring. And listen to this voice. These are the famous first lines of Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning, mid-October, with the sun not shining and a look of hard, wet rain, the clearness of the foothills. I was wearing my powder-blue suit with dark blue shirt, tie, and display handkerchief, black brogues, 
black wool socks with dark blue clocks on them. I was neat, clean, and shaved, and sober, and I didn't care who knew it. I was everything the well-dressed private detective ought to be. I was calling on $4 million. What's the voice? It's tough, street uh, street smart, and unpolished. Isn't it great? Doesn't it exactly fit a flat-foot noir detective story? Once again, let me say that I write in my own voice. I don't try to shade it left or right. I'm putting down words as I compose them in my head, not trying to sound like a Los Angeles detective or someone at the Shire with J.R.R. Tolkien's characters. You might try that. If if you're not trying to get across a specific effect with your voice, use your own voice. Use the one that uh, you speak with and that's in your head normally. That's the end of this episode. Next time, we're going to visit for the first time uh, the subject of dialogue. I love writing dialogue. Uh, You can be snappy and witty and say things with punch, give your characters uh, attitudes. But the fact it's fun to write for many writers doesn't mean there aren't uh, some techniques that'll help us do really good dialogue, and we'll talk about them next, next time. Until then, please keep tapping those keys.